0: Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Triple R. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein at Go-Go. You are listening to 3RRR. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for tuning in for an hour of science. Big thank you to the team from Radiotherapy for bringing us through to 11. Now, I have my team on the line as per usual. Good morning, team. Good morning, Stacey.
1: Morning, Dr. Shane. Morning, Ailey and Ray. How are you going?
0: Hey, guys. How are you?
1: Good, good. You? Good, good,
0: good. Excellent. Now, uh, we've got we've got three guests coming up today, folks, but we're going to hit you with some news first. Uh, I don't know about you guys, but it was weird watching the grand final last night in Melbourne being played in another city. I just kept posting images on my Twitter feed of the MCG to keep people happy. It was a bit, bit out of whack for me, but um, anyway, so be it. Uh, congratulations were to you- all those Richmond supporters out there. I'm not one of them, but... The
1: res- Were you happy with the result, Dr. Shane?
0: Well, actually, we had a little thing going with uh, my boys and I, and uh, me and my youngest son were barracking for Richmond, and my my stroppy um, teenager was barracking for Geelong, so he had to, um, unfortunately, had to give up and say, yep, okay, fine. But he was very very good about it, so very good about it. But anyway, let's jump into some science. Uh, Dr. Ray, let's start with you.
2: Dr. Shane, um, I uh, was reading this week about the Vera Rubin Observatory, which is actually located in Chile, and I was not that familiar with its mission. Over the next 10 years, its job is basically to do complete panoramas of the southern sky every few days. Yeah. So it's actually mapping the entire southern sky, which is which has never been done before on this scale. So it's every part of the southern sky. And I kind of went, that's an amazing thing because it gives you the ability to see galaxies and stars but on a time scale so you can see when they get brighter when they get darker remember brightness fluctuations are one of the key parts in in stars and determining exoplanets and so this just went wow this is really interesting and i went well i know how a telescope works i know how observatory works but what do they need that's different as it turns out to take pictures of the southern sky like this um they need a camera that doesn't exist and so they've been building this camera and they've actually been building this camera In uh, the uh, Slack National Accelerator Laboratory in California, this is the world's largest digital camera. It's the size of an SUV. Um, And, you know, the the number of pixels on it is insane. The iPhone 12 has 12 megapixels. The best DSLR on the market I could find, because I looked yesterday, has about 45 megapixels. This has 3,200 megapixels or 3.2 gigapixels. Uh, and it's a bunch of CMOS sensors, and it, it, it's huge. It is 64 centimeters in diameter at the chip face, where you get the image to focus on it. The iPhone 11 is uh, 26 millimeters. This is 64 centimeters. So, I mean, in in the old units, that's 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 mm. kind of like two feet, uh, which is a huge sensor. Um, and 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 it's got a resolution, the equivalent resolution. That if you wanted to actually see what it is at at full screen resolution, you need 378 4K ultra definition TV screens just to get a a size of the image and how big it is. And they're building this camera, but they're still building it. They've completed the sensor and they go, we want to see if it works before we mail it to Chile. Hmm. So how do you test a telescope digital camera when you don't have objects really far away in a big telescope? Well, as it turns out, this is fantastic. What you do is you take a picture of something very close, but instead of doing it through a big telescope lens, you do it through a tiny, tiny hole optically called the pinhole, which is about 150 microns in diameter, so think two, three times the thickness of your hair. And so they took a picture of something that's got an awful lot of structure, so they could look at it really close to test out the sensor. Now, the good news is the sensor works. The weirder news is what they took a picture of. So... I'm sure most people are familiar with broccoli, but are, are, are you know, there's also broccoflower, cauliflower, cauliflower broccoli or whatever, but Romanescu broccoli is of course the, the green one with the little cones that have the little cones coming off with it. It's a very highly structured, really interesting looking plant. I personally have always referred to it as fractal broccoli and everyone in my house looks at me kind of funny, but um, what it is, is it's it's got such high definition that they were able to actually image broccoli to test out the sensor, to make sure hmm. all the, uh, everything's aligned, and uh, and it works fantastically. And it will be um, moving on from heads of vegetables in late 2022 to actually starting to map the sky and test that being tested in the Vera Rubin Observatory. Fantastic. So I can't wait until 2023. We'll start seeing amazing pictures of of the southern sky. Yeah. I'm sure Dr. Shane's excited too.
0: Oh look, I am, and I think one of the other exciting things, and I'm pretty sure people will correct me if I'm wrong, but this is the first telescope, uh, major telescope in the world, named after a woman. Um, and Vera Rubin was an extraordinary astronomer, actually, and she was the one who you may have heard of the galaxy rotation problem and this is where galaxies don't quite rotate at the speed we expect them to. and hence as a result of that we think oh there must be something else there and hence the search for dark matter. So Vera Rubin is quite you know should almost be a household oh, wow. name um, but is not. And I think it's fantastic that they're actually naming this telescope um, after her and I think she was deceased in around. 20 i want to say 15 16 but um an amazing scientist and great to have a, a telescope a major telescope around the world being named after her so yeah that part's really cool but um, it'll be phenomenal when it's up and running so thanks dr Rate. uh dr stacy what do you got
1: Oh, hi. Well, um, i am un, uh, unfortunately got a bit more doom and gloom to share. I, I tend to be the one uh, around the table here that always brings the bad news, so apologies in advance for that. <laughs> um, a very large study came out of uh, Nature Medicine last week, which examined the impact of COVID-19 pandemic on all-cause mortality. So this is people dying of any cause and not specifically just COVID. And essentially what they did is they examined historical death data from 21 industrialised countries, uh, largely in Central and Western Europe, plus Australia and New Zealand, to predict uh, the number and rates of deaths that may have been expected in these countries had the pandemic not occurred.
0: You've just gone on to mute there, Stacey. There we go.
1: Sorry. Uh, Then, um, so what they were able to do is they were able to compare what was expected um, with the number of deaths that actually did occur to calculate excess mortality potentially attributable to the pandemic. So um, their approach factored in, um, accounted for things like death rates, changes in death rates that we normally see, such as seasonality and temperature and public holidays and things like that. But what they found was is that between mid-February and May uh, this year, so 15-week period which largely represented the bulk of that first wave um, of the pandemic across much of the globe, Um, 206,000 more people died in these countries than would have had the pandemic not occurred. Wow. So it's certainly, yeah, not an insubstantial amount. Um, And proportionally more, which is probably unsurprising, proportionally more um, excess deaths occurred in Italy, Spain, and England and Wales. Mm.
3: Um,
1: So, yeah, and the difference in Italy and Spain between the all-cause excess mortality and the COVID-specific deaths was quite marked. And that... The author suggests potentially reflects underlying um, or undetected COVID infections that had resulted in deaths that weren't picked up through those mortality statistics, or it might also represent some increase in mortality due to other and acute um, and chronic causes. So um, potentially reflecting on a reduced capacity for those health systems to manage the needs of the population Um um, during periods of stress. Mm. Um, so so that's that's sort of um, a few a few countries highlighting um, quite exceedant deaths. But in contrast, the study also found a handful of countries that had no reported excess deaths. So in Central and Eastern Europe, um, there are countries like Bulgaria, Hungary, Slovakia, Czechia. Um, but also bringing it a bit closer to home, New Zealand and Australia's uh, mortality rates um, did not show any excess deaths. So, mm. um, in fact, we had reduced number of death rates relative to what was expected So, um, these sorts of studies are certainly not new. We often look at excess deaths for other... um uh, you know, major events of public health importance to the, try to examine broader impacts, for example, of seasonal influenza or extreme weather events that they often um, uh, monitor ex- excess deaths for extreme weather events. Um, but essentially, it tries to, it helps us understand um, the underlying strength of your health and social care systems yeah. and also reflects a country's ability to flex or surge. Um, so, yeah, so what the you know authors were suggesting that countries implementing those early lockdowns fared much better than um, countries which instituted the lockdowns quite late in the peace so um, citing England and Wales. Um, so it's a bit of a mix of good and bad news depending on where you live but um, regardless, it's fairly strong evidence of quite the heavy mortality toll that's been placed on us uh, globally due to COVID-19.
0: Yeah, heavy duty stuff. Thanks, Stacey. Ailey, uh, let's pivot to some uh, good news. This week, there should have only been one thing in the newsreel, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, Well, you know, obviously some very serious news with regards to people's health and, and around the world. But other than that, forgetting all the other crap that we saw in the news, there should have only been one thing. What was it?
3: That's right. So this is something with a really cool name, and it is not a Greek tragedy. OSIRIS-REx, I think it sounds like it should be. But anyway, but this is cool. This is really awesome. And this has been, uh, what, three, no, four years in the making now. Well, at least, actually, mm. four years in launch. So uh, far, far longer than that. So this is OSIRIS-REx. It stands for a, uh, a, a big, long acronym that I'm not going to explain. But basically, this was sending a minivan size uh, spacecraft to an asteroid that sat between Earth and Mars, and going and picking up a bit of it. Now, um, this is really cool. And so, this happened this week. Um, basically, OSIRIS Rex was launched back in September 2016. So, it's pretty much been four years since launch. It's gone to an asteroid called, here we go, 101955 Bennu or we'll just call it Bennu, um, but basically this asteroid, it's about a radius of about 250 metres, so 500 metres kind of wide. Um, so it's kind of the size, well, the, the, the height, if you want to call it that, of a, of a skyscraper. Um, it's a, it's a slow-rotating asteroid, which is why they picked it, and it's also a special type of asteroid uh, that's that's called a B-type asteroid. And It basically contains material that they consider to be very primitive in terms of uh, the development of the solar system. So the reason they chose this asteroid is it hasn't geologically changed a lot since our solar system formed. So it gives us a brilliant uh, opportunity to sample the rocks and the dust that are on it to find out the materials they're made of to really give us an idea of what it was like at the time of the formation of the solar system. Yeah. So this minivan uh, spacecraft shot off from Earth, uh, zoomed past us uh, in late September 2016. It reached the asteroid way back in December 2018, and it's been uh, just hanging around the asteroid for a couple of years, getting to know it. And it found a sampling site. So that was its first task, was to find a sampling site. It found a a relatively flat uh, area on on the asteroid, Uh, There were some complications in the sense that it was kind of between these two big boulders, so they had to make sure that they got it in exactly the right spot. And then last Tuesday this spacecraft shot out a 3.5-metre arm, gave the asteroid a poke, stirred up some dust and some rock and then basically dust-busted it up. So it sucked it up um, into a little container and went on its merry way and it's now coming back to Earth. Now, we have had a few complications in the last couple of days. Turns out that this uh, this little spacecraft was so successful, it sucked up a bit too much stuff and there's now a rock jamming the door open. And so what that means is that they're, they're actually leaking a little bit of, of space dust. So they were going to try and measure... Uh, how much stuff they actually got. They, they estimated around 400 grams. They were only hoping to get 60 grams. So um, 400 is amazing if that's what they've got. But because of this, they were going to try and measure how much they've actually got. But they've decided now just to play it safe because it is leaking, uh, leaking regolith, which is the dust and the rock. So they're just going to put it back inside the spacecraft and, and bring it on home and, and wait till they get home to, to measure yeah. everything but it's such a good news story because this is this has been uh so long in the making it's not the first time something like this has been done japan did it a few years ago as well but it is a really important step towards really understanding uh how our solar system formed and and um yeah it's really, really interesting. So and other, very, other
0: than that, the only other time we've done this is with the Apollo missions in the sixties, yeah. bring back uh, rock, and and this thing's amazing oh. because you know there's a there is a very slim chance, what is it, one in three thousand or one in twenty seven hundred that this this yeah. uh, Bennu will actually collide with Earth. If you're still around in twenty one thirty five, okay. folks, look out! Um, yeah. It's going to come damn close. Like it'll actually be about the same distance as the moon is from Earth. That's that is close for a near Earth asteroid, um, but odds are it won't uh, hit the Earth. But it's it's, it's pretty. Uh, it's a pretty close call, but it's, yeah, extraordinary technology to do this, an incredible amount of work by so many people over, as you say, it's four years since launch, but a decade before that of work in getting this going.
3: That's right, and this has been a really close collaboration, I think, the University of Arizona and NASA yeah. and a whole bunch of others, and it's, um, you know, it's been, it's one of those things that, you know, the precision is key, you know, yeah. everything has to go it's right. fantastic stuff. When well, it does, it's so exciting.
0: Guys, we're going to run on because we've got uh, so many guests on the show today. But uh, thanks so much for the news. Take care, you three, and we will chat again very, very soon.
3: Thanks a lot.
0: Bye. Thanks, team. Folks, uh, we're going to take a break for some music. And when we are back, we'll be talking to our first guest for today in just a few minutes. Triple R. Yeah, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Einstein and going on 3 Triple R. We were hoping to have uh, a guest on from Harvard, but uh, it looks like they have not come on to the Zoom call, which is a bit unfortunate, so I thought I would actually talk to you a little bit more about NASA's OSIRIS-REx spacecraft, because uh, this is something that we, um, I guess we we don't think a lot about the difficulties here in, in these um, sorts of missions and what's involved, but... As uh, Stacey was saying, our capability of examining uh, objects when they are from you know, distant um, objects, whether they be planets or stars or whatever, really relies very heavily on our ability to look at optical signals. So the way we normally do things is we have a look at the light that either is reflected off or generated by objects. So in the case of planets, it's generally light that is reflected off their star, in our case the sun, similar with uh, asteroids like Bennu, we can see them because they reflect a certain amount of light back towards us. And this gives us the ability to examine that light very carefully. And what happens when light bounces off an object is the light is not all reflected in the same way. So when you're looking at an object, the reason that it appears a certain colour to our eyes is because uh, only those colours are reflected. So if you look at a a green leaf, for example, you would um, see it as green because most of the other colours in the visible spectrum are absorbed by that particular plant, and hence it only reflects the green, and we see green. Uh, Similarly, when you look at a blue sky, it's because a lot of the other light is reflected or or absorbed, and the part that gets to us is blue. Now, if you start doing this in a far more detailed way, what you can do is you can look at what parts of the sun's light get reflected off certain objects, and you can study that. And in some cases, you can determine what the material is that those objects are made from. So in the case of far distant objects, we can work out which parts of, of the spectrum are missing and from that determine what certain um, planets and so forth are made of. So you may recall that recently some um, very smart researchers were looking with some uh, Earth-based telescopes at the, the type of reflections that were coming off or the type of light that was coming off uh, Venus And they determined from that very carefully that there was some certain sort of biological-type molecules potentially um, doing some work in the upper atmosphere of Venus now that part of the atmosphere is very very uh, volatile it's, it's highly acidic so it's unlikely that there would be life there but what these researchers found of course was certain chemicals that on earth at least are produced by uh, bacteria I think it was And so by looking at the light coming off Venus, we could determine what some of those chemicals in the atmosphere um, were. Very, very, very small amounts of those chemicals, but with the right telescopes, we can pick up very, very small changes in those optical wavelengths. And that gives us an idea of what materials are there. And of course, that then says to us, well, you know, we might want to get something over the Venus to have a bit of a, a closer look. Now, of course, it very much depends on how bright an object is, where it's located, and we can still only get a certain amount of information from this sort of work. So this is where the OSIRIS-REx uh, mission came in because, of course, our ability to just go and grab something from another another planet or another uh, celestial object like an asteroid is pretty low this is really really hard stuff and interestingly enough we only have very small amounts of material we have some moon rock we do have some pieces of mars a lot of people aren't aware of this but there's been some impacts on mars over the years that have resulted in debris entering earth's orbit And eventually coming down onto Earth's surface, and people find them, think they're just normal meteorites, but on closer inspection, finding out that they're actually small pieces of Mars that over a long, long journey have managed to make their way um, to Earth. So we have a few small pieces of Martian rock, but of course we don't have much more than that. All of the rovers and the various missions to Mars haven't been able to return samples to us. Now, of course, we know that the new rover that is heading to Mars will do this. It will actually package up some samples, very similar to what's happened on OSIRIS-REx, and those samples will be then stored on Mars, and they will be collected by a later mission a little bit, um, a few years later. So this is the Perseverance rover. Um, It will collect up and package up some Martian samples, and then those samples will be retrieved and returned to Earth a little bit later. Now, as as we know from the Apollo missions, there's nothing quite like having human beings there to do some of this work. But that being said, uh, if you think back to the days of Apollo and the type of instrumentation that we had back then, the type of cameras that we had, the type of robotics we had there really wasn't a lot on offer to do that work in a sophisticated way. Whereas things like the Perseverance rover, even the Curiosity, its predecessor, and certainly the sorts of work that OSIRIS-REx have done indicates that now we have a level of technology which is very different from what uh, was around in the 60s. And that means that we can effectively grab some of these samples and hopefully, with a little bit of luck and a lot of incredible engineering, return them to Earth for examination. Now, one of the reasons we want to be able to do that is the types of instruments that we would use for examination here are far beyond what we can just do with those sort of um, light type of examination versions when things are out in the distant cosmos. So getting some of these materials into mass spectrometers to determine what they're made of, getting them under microscopes here, will give us a lot more information. And as Dr Ailey said, the interesting thing about asteroids like Bennu compared to say Earth or Mars is that these things are essentially unchanged from the days when the solar system was first being formed and this is a bit of a time capsule for us so we're able to go back and look at the types of materials that were there when we first started examining um, or when the, when the solar system was first being formed, and we can examine things from back then, you know, billions of years ago, and this is quite extraordinary because if we look at what's happened on Earth, of course, there's been so much upheaval and change uh, geologically and with, um, you know, just biological interference, actually. So, you know, biology makes a lot of changes to geology as well. Um, but with something like the the Bennu asteroid, asteroid, this will be very different because it is pristine material, from the days when the when the um, solar system was just forming. Now the the cool part is, um, as Dr. Ailey said, this thing is about 490 meters in diameter. So that's know, about two Eiffel towers. It's not huge, but if you think of a rock that size, it's immense. So this thing weighs about 80 billion. Kil- uh, kilograms which is an extraordinary amount of material and it has a small gravitational field of course as it would and being able to you know bring the Osiris-rex craft down and collect the sample is quite an extraordinary achievement of course there's a bit of a delay in the signals that get back from from the object back to the control room here on earth so it's one of those things where you know what we realize is if, if The craft had failed. Um, It had failed before we even know that it had failed. So you can't send real-time, you know, uh, information back to it to avoid collisions or anything. You have to make sure everything's done very well prior to actually trying to scoop up some sample. Now as Dr. Ailey said, the sample collection has been so successful here, and they're only looking for about 60 grams. That was the goal. They seem to have got a lot more than that. But there's a little mylar sort of um, lid. Think of it as a, you know, your kitchen sort of uh, tub lid that you, you need to close effectively before you go rocking it about. And there's so much material in there that this lid hasn't closed properly. So what they're thinking of doing, as Dr. Ailey said, is instead of actually determining the mass and you know getting all excited that maybe there's you know getting on towards half a kilo of material in there they're going to now push that system back into its um, sealed uh, vessel for return to earth so we won't know how much is in there but we will know there's a fair bit in there which is which is pretty exciting so all in all um, a really big piece of information to head back to earth within the next few years and it's one of those things where we will get information on a on an object um, that is relatively close to Earth and I should say that we only know about a small fraction of these near earth asteroids it's very important that we learn more and more about them so that we know um, what we can expect if we ever have a problem with one of them and as I as I said this one has about a one in twenty seven hundredth chance of uh, colliding with Earth in the year twenty one thirty five. So very very low chance of that happening if the calculations are correct, which they typically are. Uh, it won't occur at all. But you you never know. There could be other things that happen between now and then that will cause a problem. But asteroid Bennu is is one of these one of the very few. Uh, non-Earth objects that we will soon have material from so it's pretty exciting from that perspective and an extraordinary feat of engineering to be able to put a small craft up near an asteroid go down scoop some stuff up and actually keep that collected and hopefully return it to Earth. In fact as uh, as we said, it is leaking material and it's so subtle, the amount of leaking that's happening and so easy to cause it to be really problematic that they haven't even fired the return thrusters to move the craft away from the asteroid yet because if they do, there is a chance that more material will leak out just because of the change in acceleration of the craft. So all of this is all going to happen in the right order at the right time very carefully. And uh, the best engineers in the world are on. It. So it should be a pretty exciting outcome, hopefully, and we will learn more about that once that sample return uh, is actually happening. Now we're going to take a break for some music, folks, and we'll be back uh, hopefully with our next guest in just a few minutes. RRR. Uh, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Einstein Go Go on Three Triple R. On the line now, I have Dr. Madison Patton. She is a research fellow in Cerebral Palsy Alliance Research Institute at the University of Sydney. Good morning, Madison. How are you going?
4: I'm great, thank you. Hi, Dr. Shane. Thanks for having me.
0: Look, it's great to talk to you. Uh, what's life like up in Sydney? Uh, you know, us Melbourneians couldn't imagine. What, you know, did you go out last night? Is that the normal thing for a Saturday night?
4: Well, actually, um, we stayed in because I had some contact with my Melbourne friends and it just wouldn't have been right to go out and party at this moment. But look, things are quite different here in New South Wales compared to Vic and I'm originally from Melbourne, so um, I'm hoping to make it back down there for Christmas and that's really my only hope at the moment.
0: Yeah, I'm hoping to get away from my house for Christmas. I just (laughs) (laughs) go somewhere. Uh, Look, we're all hoping we're going to get some more announcements on Tuesday. Unfortunately, uh, nothing's changed today for us, which is a bit unfortunate. But uh, we're hoping things will change a bit on on Tuesday. Now, you work in the area, uh, which is uh, you know it's a really important space of cerebral palsy. Um, Before we get into your sort of actual work, can you give us a bit Mm -hmm. of a rundown of what this particular condition is and some of the symptoms and so forth people experience.
4: No problems. So cerebral palsy is actually the most common physical disability in childhood. It can be caused by damage to the developing brain in many different ways. And currently, there's really limited treatment options which target the brain directly. And this is where stem cells might come in as a really promising and emerging treatment. Mm. So this is that whole space that I currently work in.
0: Yeah. And, and what happens? Like when, when, when do you work out like, that a child has cerebral palsy? And, and what's the process of that? Like What, what are the clues?
2: Yeah.
4: So this is actually where the definition of cerebral palsy becomes so complicated. And it's the idea that there's damage to the developing brain, but this Mm. can occur in a variety of different ways and at many different stages um, most commonly it, it occurs around the timing of birth okay and so the most common causes might be you know being born too soon so preterm birth, maybe some types of infection during pregnancy, uh, growth restriction and also birth asphyxia so really acute events that are, are occurring during birth.
0: Mm. and Mm. and what what happens like so you know after birth what what sort of things are are going is is it the loss of motor control or are there other is it mainly the motor control stuff or is it other stuff as well
4: that's right. So with the definition of cerebral palsy, they do relate mostly to the the motor function and those symptoms. But with cerebral palsy, we see so many other confounding difficulties and losses of function. Um, but look, they're completely different depending on the person mm-hmm. and the type of injury. You know, some might see sleep disorders. They mm-hmm. might have seizures and other problems. Um, you know, that not related to function and motor control. So it really depends on the type of injury, and that comes down to the fact that it can be caused by just so many different types of injury to the brain.
0: Yeah. And, and what's a sort of, I suppose, a similar question where you, unless you know exactly what part of it you're talking about, what sort of progression is there for, for children afflicted with this condition? I mean, is there a sort of lead into normal life later, or is this something that they just yeah. won't recover from?
4: Yeah, so generally, we're coming back down to the definition of CP, it's non progressive. And so, normally, when you get the, um, the diagnosis of cerebral palsy, you will have that diagnosis for the rest of your life. It, it doesn't mean that the motor function and the condition might develop and look differently throughout ageing, mm. um, but typically if, if you're being told that you, that you can't walk, that you can't um, have you know limb function or something like that, that will be maintained for life. But the great part is that research really is developing. We're getting better at recognising the... Um, diagnosis of cerebral palsy earlier, but also those high-risk symptoms, which means that we're able to come in much earlier now, not only prevent cerebral palsy and reduce the rate, but we're now looking at new treatments and, um, you know, investigations mm. like stem cells and being able to couple that with really incredible new rehabilitation that we're seeing as well.
0: Yeah. Now, the, the, the term cerebral palsy, you know, c- cerebral obviously, you know, is an issue with the brain. What, what sort of yes. things are you looking to do with stem cells? Is this something where, I mean, I want to hear you say grow new brain parts, but maybe, <laughs> is, is that where we're heading?
4: Well, the interesting part is that 10 years ago when we thought of applying stem cells as a cell therapy, we were always looking at that classic regenerative Mm. function. But now we're learning more and more about how we can apply them and where they come from and the different types. We're learning about all the new different types of functions. So now when we think of cell therapies, we're really looking at three different functions. So that's regenerative, but also immunomodulatory, so increasing good cytokines and reducing the bad ones. And then also looking at how stem cells are trophic and how they're releasing growth factors, which might actually help help with repair and a restoration of function.
0: Mm. And do you, do you have to program the stem cells before they go in or is this one of these magical things where the stem cells kind of work out where they are and what job they should be doing? Yeah.
4: So, it depends on what cell therapy we're talking about. So, some look at um, reprogramming the cells. But, you know, the ones that I'm really interested in, which which are a number of them, um, they actually work so well when we apply them into the body. In research, we're seeing that stem cells generally home to targets of injury already, um, and they're able to really follow and... um, Initiate new signals which might be of help, and and what we're learning more and more about cerebral palsy and all these causal pathways is that we've got these underlying signals which actually mean that when stem cells are applied, they know exactly what they're able to do, Mm. and they know where to go, and that will be different for all the different types of injury.
0: Yeah, and whereabouts are we in the research? Are we still sort of at the, I suppose that the mouse model or or in Mm. a dish, you know, organ in a dish? I don't know whereabouts whereabouts are we? Are we anywhere near? Uh, you know actual human trials at this point
4: yeah well the exciting part is actually we've we've come a massive way in the last five years in particular we know that there are dozens of trials which have already been completed in cerebral palsy so in clinical trials they're mostly up till phase twos and we are needing more phase three of those larger ones um, but look, there's still a lot more work to be done in the preclinical phase. So, actually, a big part of my job is to try to recognize what kinds of research needs to be done in the different phases mm-hmm. and then drive it so that it can be new access to treatments when proven safe and effective.
0: Yeah. And just to remind me and our listeners, phase two and three, how do they differ?
4: Yeah. So, phase two generally will focus more on efficacy. And they look at one specific outcome. So once they've shown that it's safe in a phase one, Mm -hmm. they move move to phase two to prove that it's actually working with more a bigger sample, yep, and then phase three is this scalability phase where they work out okay, well, it was effective, can it be even more effective in a larger sample? And does this hold true when we treat more and more people, right? And it's also a little bit of a test for the real world, you know, can it be scaled?
0: Yeah, so that's pretty exciting because what you're saying is so phase one, you shove some of this stuff in my body yeah. and, and it didn't kill me, phase yeah. two, you put the right stuff in the right place in my body and it actually had an effect. Yes. That is, hey, you know, this is what we're trying to achieve. And then mm. phase three is where you really start applying it clinically in a larger number of people. And yeah, is that, is that, right. have I got that right? I always forget these You've phases. You've got that right. I'm a physics guy. <laughs> I can't remember this. Yeah.
4: <laughs> yeah, that's not me, but <laughs> I'll stay away from the physics.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: But,
4: yeah, actually, what's been really wonderful recently is I've worked on a large systematic review. We've been able to actually summarize this level of evidence, not really for all cell types and all conditions, but we've honed in on cerebral palsy to understand where exactly we're at um, and that's been a, a huge part of research for this year for cerebral palsy is trying to actually you know take stock of all of the research that we've done to understand where to next.
0: Yeah it's super interesting now I'm going to throw a question that you just can com- probably completely outside of your normal range but Oof. I mean you're, you're talking about sort of modifications in the brain which is a super complex Area. What about sort of heading out of the brain into like the the, the spinal column and other nerve systems? Because it seems to me as though if you are if you're managing to make this sort of progress in the brain itself, then some of the other issues around, especially people who've lost the use of their their limbs and so forth due to injuries, are we are we able to you know get closest to some of that as a result of some of this work?
4: Yes. Yeah, we are. And actually, you've brought up a really interesting idea, which is actually. The application of stem cells is even broader than the central nervous system. So you're Mm. saying that we can use those stem cells to target the brain and the spinal column and getting into the CSF and all of those sorts of goodies. Um, But what's actually most exciting is that the cells don't even need to be applied directly. And a lot of the effects we're seeing in the brain are actually a result of systemic immune modulation and changes. So that's the part of work that I got really excited about during my PhD as well. Um, We're able to apply the cells um, in preclinical models, but also we've seen in clinical studies now where you can give stem cells systemically um, depending on the different types of them and how we know they can be applied. And they're able to create these changes which really promote more of a reparative environment, which then in turn help our brain.
0: Yeah. Oh, look, it's extraordinary stuff. I mean – I just think of where we were 10 years ago on this and, you know, there was there was so much hype around stem cells and stuff. But there yeah. really wasn't much, to be frank, coming out in terms of actual oh, results. And, you know, mm-hmm. I think it's good to have the hype because it helps get the funding in and so forth. But sooner or later, you've got to start delivering the goods. And it sounds like, you know, this stuff really is starting to deliver the goods on what is a terrible series of conditions that affects, you know, what... How many Australians does it affect, actually? actually?
4: Yeah, so at the moment, there's more than 34,000 Australians oh. who have cerebral palsy. I know. So it's, yeah. it's incredible. And there's more than 17 million wor- worldwide. Yeah. Um, yeah. And as I said, all of those treatments really aren't targeting the brain directly. They're more about management. And so, as you said, it's really interesting to try and understand then what new therapies are emerging that can actually target that. Yeah. And as you said, you know, a decade ago, we were looking at a lot of the hype. Um, but families and people with cerebral palsy have said, Stem cells are what we want to know more about, you know. Mm. We know there's a lot of hype, but is there a lot of science behind it? And we're playing a lot of catch-up, but the new data that's emerging is really promising, especially for one type of stem cells from umbilical cord blood. Um, And we know, too, that if, if we don't implement them quickly in Australia, now they've proven safe people will actually just explore other options which aren't unsafe overseas.
0: Medical tourism, got to stay well clear of that, people, well clear of that. Well, um, Madison, we've got to run off, but uh, it's been an absolute delight talking to you. And, uh, you know, I have to say um, this is an area where I think, you know, more resources could have a huge impact. And as you say, almost 35,000 people, that is not an insignificant number and the effects are quite catastrophic in some cases. So thanks so much for chatting to us today. And uh, we look forward to hearing more about this uh, in the future. I think it'd be great to um, to hear more um, you know, as, as this stuff progresses and we get into those beyond stage three trials and, and really getting into this being a therapy that people can access. So thanks so much. Thank you. Dr. Madison Patton is a research fellow from the Cerebral Palsy Alliance Research Institute at the University of Sydney. Folks, we're going to take a break for some music and, uh, sorry, station announcements actually and we'll be back in just a few moments with our next guest. R. Uh, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Einstein and Go Go on 3 r We have our second guest on the line now, Dr. Hamish McWilliam. He is a postdoctoral research fellow at the Doherty Institute at the University of Melbourne. Good morning, Hamish. How are you going? Yeah, good, thanks. How are you? Yeah, not bad. Uh, where are you? I, I can see a, a, some kind of a stained cell image in your Zoom background. Whereabouts yeah. are you? You're in Melbourne?
5: I'm actually in Geelong at the moment, so I actually live outside
0: um, Melbourne. I'm out of the metro. Jeez. Just, um, yeah. Geelong so just, is uh Geelong a happy place this morning? Perhaps not. Not not really. <laughs> no.
5: <laughs> I haven't really been out, but yeah, it was a bit of a sad um stay last night, but you know.
0: Yeah, um, yeah. Oh, good game though. Good game everyone. Uh, I think uh, there it was, was. A, there was a good game. Uh now you um I mean you're in the uh, I suppose the Doherty Institute, which is you know ground zero for uh, Im- immuno excitement in Melbourne. What's it what's it? have you been yeah. able to get into the lab or uh, I know there's restricted access. What's that been like?
5: Yeah, we have had a lot of um restricted access. Um I mean as as you probably know there's a lot of research going on into covid. Um I um, I don't I'm not actually involved in that, um, but there's yeah. there's so much really a hive of activity going on. So um, there has been continued access for a lot of the really you know um, important research um, on COVID, and and slowly the other um, projects like my projects and uh, my students have been getting back in as well. So. But we've got really good, you know, social distancing and all that kind of stuff. So.
0: Yeah. Well, what was it like, uh, you know, feel free not to answer this, but, you know, and I'm good buddies with Sharon Loon, so I'm sure she'd be okay with it if you do. But uh, that's the director, folks. She was on radiotherapy just about half an hour ago, but... um when Before COVID hit, there would have been people working on the SARS type viruses at the Doherty. Were they kind of like, you know, the, the, the uncles you didn't want to know and then all of a sudden they were the rock stars? I mean, how, is, how are things shifted? Because, you know, HIV and so forth huge in the Doherty. You know, some really interesting stuff yeah. that's been the primary work of the Doherty, I suppose. And, and all of a sudden, you know, this thing's, you know, it's like when the Brisbane floods occurred and everyone wanted to be a hydrologist. I mean, what has what, yeah. that changed at the Doherty over the last year? Yeah, it's quite fascinating
5: because, um, you know, there's a lot of, well, there, yeah, like you said, there has been a lot of um, virology work that's been done over the years. Um, and, um, I mean, there's a lot of top influenza work that's been done as well. And, and a lot of those researchers are now, you know, applying what they know for um, influenza onto yep. um, COVID, um, such as, the, you know, the immune response and figuring out um, how that works. So, um but, yeah, it's, uh, it's, fa- it's fascinating to watch, you know, that explosion and, and a lot of, you know, sort of hardcore immunologists that don't um, touch a virus are now mm. applying their expertise to COVID. I think it's really great to see the sort of cooperation, actually, and um, how it happens. And I think everyone's tempted to sort of work on COVID, but then you sort of don't want to neg- neglect or and you have to keep going with what you're funded to do as well yeah. um, in some cases. So, um, yeah, yeah must- it's, it's yeah, I was going to say
0: there must be there must be an extreme sense of responsibility from many of the researchers there to to do work that isn't COVID related because there are you know yeah, if you're working on dengue or you're working on HIV you know the, the impacts of these around the world are extraordinary and have been for a very very long time.
5: Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, you know, um, our um, um, taxpayers have sort of trained all these brilliant scientists, so they sort of they do have a obligation to you know put in where they can, and and that's part of what we while we do what we do you know yeah in case we can help yeah
0: yeah now um about once a year i have a a young girl on this show her name's may she has primary immunodeficiency syndrome and is one of the many people of course that you know we are all wearing masks at the moment to help protect people who have compromised immune systems for various reasons Uh, this Mm -hmm. this is sort of where you you step in with regards Mm -hmm. to strengthening this i mean give us a Quick idea first, what sort of things do weaken people's immune systems to the point where, you know, we have to take some additional action?
5: Yeah, I mean there's a whole range of um things. I mean, um well, I mean at the very beginning of life, you know, children, their immune system's developing, so they Mm. um don't you know, your immune system needs to be trained um and respond to um diseases and bacteria um over over uh, years. So that's partly um what the system I work on is and um but then you know people have to take a lot of Um, various medications that weaken the immune system um and and other diseases that that can really shut down your immune system i mean hiv we've mentioned before and there's a whole range of things and then when you get older you know your um immune system starts to wane as well um and um, and that's just a natural part of aging. So, yeah. um, so many different causes, yeah. Sounds scary.
0: Uh, you know, <laughs> don't worry, folks. Uh, for the most part of your life, a lot of people have well-functioning immune systems, thankfully. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, um, yeah I mean, yeah. But, uh, no, I mean, it's, it, it is an important point, though, that there are so many different ways in which our immune systems are compromised. Now, you've been looking at something new in our cells that has a very, very exciting sort of, um, I, I suppose, role to play in, in this. Tell yeah. us all about that.
5: Yeah, that's right. So I work on this um, this one protein called MR1, uh, and it's uh, it's kind of like a uh, molecular uh, alarm system. That I like to think of it like an alarm that our cells are equipped with. So it's essentially a way that our immune system detects um, bacteria. So it's a little molecular alarm that our cells have, and and if the bacteria have these certain chemicals that only come from bacteria, and MR1 is capable of like capturing those. And then it um, sends them to the cell surface and then uh, the immune cells recognize that and know that that's an alarm. So then they start to activate. It's kind of like a, it's a molecular um, alarm that really triggers the immune response and and gets the immune system to to know when there's a bacteria nearby. Yeah. Is
0: is this in all cells in the body or do we find this in some cells and not others?
5: Yeah, that's a that's an interesting question. That's sort of an ongoing part, actually, because... We, we, we really don't even know which cells um, have it. But it seems to be that all cells we look at have a bit of MR1, mm-hmm. um, a really tiny amount, and that's all you seem see, to need is a really small amount to operate. So, I mean, um, but we do think that some cells have more and that's some of the work that um, I'm trying to work on at the moment. But what I've been doing recently like leading up to this is to try and figure out how this, um, which happens in all of our cells, how it actually works because we just haven't really known very
0: well. Hmm. and pre- presumably i mean the goal here is well i don't know you tell me but uh, you know I, I find that i'm a little immune compromised so you give me a little mr1 uh, booster shot or something and whammo my cells are better at uh telling my i assume it's the t-cells that then come in and do the the cleanup work is that is that the is yeah. that where it's
5: going yeah that's exactly what what we hope i mean this is really you know fundamental research like how does this operate because it's happening into us all the time but we can really see that um, where it could go and we, we hope that there could be some treatments to come of it. So, I mean, currently, so say if your immune system is a bit weak and you've got a bacterial infection, say in the lungs, you've got pneumonia. At the moment, I mean, I'm not a medical doctor, but I think you know they'll give you some antibiotics and some other treatments. Um, so we think this could be another treatment like that. So instead of you know directly killing the bacteria with antibiotics, which can um, start, you know, the bacteria can become resistant to that, you could actually... Have something to boost your um, your T cells, the the immune, um, the bacterial fighting cells. Um, directly by like operating on MR1. So, yeah, that's yeah. what
0: we think. And uh, you know, the exciting thing for me when I start thinking about this is, okay, when, when you give someone steroidal treatments or you give someone other things that suppress the immune system, I mean, my immediate question, I'm sure you probably already know this, is what, what part is being suppressed? Is it is it the MR1 that's no longer working? Is it the T cells that kind of take a lunch break? Like yeah. now that we know this new stuff about the way our cells are signaling to the sort of you know the team that comes and does all the the actual the battling work, I mean, you, do we have a feel for what part you know of the immune system gets suppressed you know during chemotherapy during all these other things?
5: Yeah, I mean, I mean well, the immune system is is really complex. You know, yeah. it's this huge array of types of cells, as you know, and there's so many things that 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 get shut down. Um, but we we know when people become immunosuppressed that um they're that. The t cells and the other lymphocytes they just drop in number so okay. um and um not yeah there's probably so many causes for that but, but we think that that could also you know these molecular systems like mr1 where there's a number of these as well they could they could also be not working properly in certain conditions as well yeah so we could with those yeah
0: and and with this with this particular protein i mean how, how do you see it like how do you how do you know it's actually there yeah, it's
5: a good question. Yeah, we always have to come up with some, you know, inventive ways to study these things because these are all um, effectively invisible. Um, and actually, so with um, some work we recently um, published, we um, we teamed up with these um, these really top um, chemists up in um, the Institute for um, Molecular Bioscience um, at University of Queensland. Um, so Jeff Mack and um, David Fairley. So they're really good at synthesizing these compounds, the ones that Mr. One captures from bacteria. Mm-hmm. And they actually made a fluorescent version of that. Um, so it's in certain specialised microscopes um, and machines, we can see um, how MR1 operates by effectively adding this fluorescent tag to the chemical. Um, so, yeah, we, uh, that was a really good collaboration and um, we're continuing to work together with the chemists and we're more of the um, immunology biologists. And, um, and so we could, we could see actually MR1 inside the cell
0: where it captures this bacterial molecule. Yeah, look, it's um, it, it's really exciting stuff, and it, it amazes me. You know, it's like when you hear about the T cell stuff, just you know, just decades ago, and so forth, and you hear about these new, new materials that we're finding, and and I suspect in ten years, yeah, of course, everyone, everyone knows about that, you know, it's, but it, it's something that's brand new, you know, just in mm-hmm. in in the recent recent sort of few years that you guys have been working on this, and it, it's exciting because it may be a key <clears throat> component of our immune system. So, Hamish, thanks so much for chatting to us today, and and good luck with this ongoing work. It, it'd be really really fascinating to see where this goes and just you know how much we can do to augment people's immune systems by playing with something that until recently we didn't even know was there so uh, yeah great yeah. work well, thanks a lot shane Folks, uh, that was Dr. Hamish McWilliam. He is a postdoctoral research fellow at the Doherty Institute at the University of Melbourne. Um, we uh, are almost out of time, and I'm going to have to hand over soon to the team from Eat It. Um, but you've been listening to Einstein at GoGo. I should say uh, next week we have a very exciting show coming up. We're going to grab a whole wad of stu- well of PhDs and early career researchers from RMIT University. It's not quite the 20 and 20 program. I think we'll have five or six of them, but it's going to be pretty fast-paced and a lot of different topics uh going on down there which will be uh really i think will be an interesting show for us all um i can see uh cam and matt uh, uh hanging around now cam is um of course supporting an industry at the moment that we were all hoping would have been open today but it's it's not quite happening so uh i think he'll have a lot to say about that no doubt But uh, for me, I'm going to have to sign off uh, for Einstein go GoGo, and we will be giving you uh, more science in about a week's time. Huge thank you to the guests for today. Also to the uh, team that came on earlier and did our news segment. My team has been extraordinary with these segments every week, uh, getting on Zoom. Unfortunately, they don't get to come to the studio, but hopefully we'll be back to doing that real soon. Have a great Sunday. Stay safe. Keep your masks on, please. We're almost where we need to be. I'll talk to you again with more science next week. R. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Gogo, A weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einsteinagogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.